0: Today on Blue 58, it's time to start our draft preview process. And as is tradition, we'll start by taking a look at this year's quarterbacks. It's an interesting class, but the Packers probably aren't going to be doing all that much shopping in this section of the draft store, right? Right? Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of ThePowerSweep.com. I'm your host, John Meerdink, happy to be with you here for another episode. We've got a bunch to cover today, but before we dive in, I want to offer a bit of an apology for being a day late here. I will spare you all the details of what happened. Sometimes when you have kids, um, you have vomit related delays and it was not my problem. I mean, just put it that way. Um, it ended up on me, but, uh, that's the, the complete story is, I guess that is pretty much the complete story. You put it together yourself from there. Anyway, uh, we are here and we'll have another episode out tomorrow. Sound good? Good. A lot of draft stuff coming and a lot of other stuff to cover. A couple corrections too. In the Devontae Adams episode, I got to show my age. It is Derek Carr that Devontae Adams is going to be playing with in Las Vegas. Not David. David's the older brother there. Derek Carr is the quarterback for the Las Vegas Raiders. Spent so much time focused on not saying the Oakland Raiders that we ended up saying the wrong Carr brother. Happens, I guess. I'm old now. Uh, other correction, it just occurred to me, and I'm sure there were a couple other small ones like this that slipped through, but I, I got Kevin King, King's contract wrong a couple episodes ago when we were talking about um, cornerbacks. He is not back with the Packers this year. He's done. He's an unrestricted free agent. So uh, there you go. If you are um, anti Kevin King, you got your wish. He's gone, which I think is probably a net positive for the Packers. Speaking of free agents, the Packers have brought one of their own. In. We haven't talked about Pat O'Donnell yet, and we'll get to him in next episode. For this one, I want to talk about Jaron Reed. The Packers have added a bit of defensive line help, and Reed is, well, not by defensive lineman standards. By normal human being standards, he's big. For a defensive lineman, he's big-ish. 6'3", 313. Second round pick by the Seattle Seahawks in 2016. Played 50% of the snaps there as a rookie, 60% in year two, 70% the rest of the way through 2020. He was with Kansas City in 2021. Actually, suited up against uh, the Packers with the Chiefs, played 64% of the snaps, and appeared in all 17 games. His best year was in 2018, 10 and a half sacks. We know sacks aren't everything. That's that's a bit of an outlier. Normally, he's about a five to seven percent pressure rate sort of guy. About five to seven percent of his pass rushes, he's getting getting. Um, a pressure on the quarterback that year it was up over ten percent, which is real good, obviously, but um, that's not who he is really as a player. Production ratio sort of backs that up. He's usually around the point two five to point five range. That year, one point four one, real good. Not a great athlete, though. That's really not his game anyway. He's not not a big pass rusher. He doesn't rely, rely on athleticism. He's a size and and don't move me sort of player. Um, The pro football focus grades on run defense aren't bad. Mid-60s for most of them. I wouldn't say he's a lock to make the roster. Uh, He's probably a pretty good bet. Uh, This seems like an insurance sort of signing, like if the Packers don't get a defensive lineman they like, he's at least another option. uh, Or if a defensive lineman they like doesn't fall to them in the draft, let's put it that way. They don't have to go out and draft one now. They just have another option on the defensive line. You could do worse than... Jaron Reed, the only real bump in the road for his career, uh, other than some some very minor injuries early in his career, has been a, like a paragon of availability. The real bump in the road for him was a six-game suspension as a part of an assault incident um, prior to 2019, but that's when the the suspension was carried out. I say incident because he was not charged, though you can look it up, and the details of the case are not pretty. If that colors your opinion of him, I do not blame you there, Uh, just it is worth mentioning and I think relevant, uh, because if you're wondering why a guy missed six games in a season, that is why, and uh, I think uh, you can look into that case to the extent uh, that you wish to. The information is all out there. All right, time to talk NFL draft. Uh, I'm excited for the draft process this year. We've been working on our evals and the, the process by which we do that for a while, and we'll get to unveil more of that as the process goes on here. But we start every year with quarterbacks. And we do that because quarterbacks are a good opportunity to talk about draft philosophy, because I think a lot of um, looking at the draft and and how you evaluate a a particular position group can be explored through quarterbacks. But I thought we'd talk draft generally, then quarterbacks specifically, then take a couple draft-related questions uh, at the end here. So the draft in general, I think it's good up front for me to lay out what I think about the draft and how I think teams and specifically the Packers should go about handling about it, handling it. I think there's there's two real or three real principles that would guide my draft philosophy I was if I was an NFL general manager. First of all, I think as someone who's making personnel moves, you have to recognize that your picks are going to fall into one of three categories. And being honest about those categories and where your players fit into them is important. Those categories are true needs, priority backfills, and general backfills. True needs are obvious. They are positions where you have a real hole. The Packers have a true need right now at wide receiver. They cannot go into the season with the talent that they have at receiver right now. They've got to add more higher-end talent at receiver. more teams I think would be better served around the NFL and I, we'd be better served as NFL fans if teams were more honest about their needs. Nobody likes saying that they draft for need, but teams draft for need all the time. Everybody knows that they exist and we just got to exist or we've got to acknowledge that they exist. You shouldn't chase your needs. You shouldn't say that we've got this this need at a position and we've got to fill that no matter what because that's when you end up making bad choices. When you say we've got a need at receiver and we are going to fill that hole we've got at receiver, come hell or high water, that's when you end up reaching for guys. That's when you end up taking a guy who might not fit your system, who might not fit athletically into the NFL. That's when you make mistakes. Don't chase your needs, but at least acknowledge that they exist. Priority backfills are the next most common, I think, pick. These are positions where you're a year away from having a true need, but let's fill it now. This is an example, I think, of, of uh, the kind of pick that A.J. Dillon was. Heading into A.J. Dillon's rookie year, the Packers had both Aaron Jones and Jamal Williams uh, on expiring contracts. And they were probably always going to bring back one of those two, but only one. They were going to need more help at running back. So, they chose to address that by taking A.J. Dillon in the second round. And you can quibble about whether or not that was the right choice, whether or not you should take a running back that high. But that's what they did. They said, We're going to have a need soon. Let's make sure we get a guy that we like now. I think you can also drop in picks where you uh, have some higher end positions and you just want to make sure that you are stocked with higher end talent. So, premium positions where you need a lot of them. I'm thinking like edge rusher and wide receiver. You need three or four edge rushers to be a competitive defense in the NFL. You need three or four wide receivers to be a competitive offense in the NFL. Prioritizing those positions and, and, and continuing to backfill them, I think you could even argue that, that certain offensive line positions are like that too, is a, is a draft strategy you should be implementing if you're, if you're a personnel guy. Finally, there's just general backfill. These are where you're drafting guys that are going to be filling in on on body heavy positions. Think offensive line, defensive line, defensive backs. You need what eight or nine offensive linemen on your 53 man roster. You need five or six defensive linemen. You need six, seven, eight, nine defensive backs just to fill out you know your your nickel packages, your your safety rotations. Um, special teams, things like that. And if you're using any defensive backs as like a returner that that adds uh, more needs there, those are body heavy positions. You just need a lot of them and you're going to be backfilling there a lot. So you've got to make sure that you, you're prioritizing that sort of approach too. You've got to sort your picks then by priorities. Uh, f- decide what you what kind of picks you need to to sort through in the draft and, and where they're going to rank in the draft, and then sort your picks by, by priorities. What should your priorities be? There's really two categories I think you can identify major priorities among every draft pick. You can look for athletic or scheme-related traits, or you can look at production. Athletic traits are obvious, guys who test really well in production is pretty obvious too. Ideally, your, your highest end players are going to have both traits and production. Beyond that, I prioritize traits and then production. I think you can find ways to make a guy productive if he has the athletic gifts that he needs to be productive. Rashawn Gary is the perfect recent example of this. The the concerns, even including this podcast on Gary coming out in the, the twenty, what was he, nineteen NFL draft were production, production, production. Nobody's got any concerns about his athletic gifts. That was never a problem. But he just didn't marry those gifts to athletic production in college. And the bet was we can teach this guy to be a productive NFL pass rusher. When it works, you get Rashawn Gary. When it doesn't work, you get Nick Perry. But I'm going to bet on the guy with athletic athletic traits or size-related traits more often than I'm going to bet on the guy who just produces. But if you can't get a guy who's athletic, get a guy who's productive. Don't draft for football intelligence and character and grit and things like that. If nothing else, get a guy who at least produced in college, all right? So those are your priorities. Finally, the third guiding principle of John's general manager school, get as many draft picks as you can to a point and don't trade up. Research shows in-depth, extensive research by high-level academic people, economists, shows that the draft is about a 50-50 proposition. You've got about a 50-50 shot between a given player and the next guy off the board at his position of picking the right one. Teams are pretty good at sorting talent by about where guys should be taken in the draft. But when it comes to the final choice of this guy or this guy between comparable players... Teams have a really hard time making that choice, and they've got about a 50% success rate. So to maximize that 50% hit rate, to maximize your chances at getting that 50-50 shot right, you need as many draft picks as you can. And the quickest way to spend draft picks is by trading up. You're spending essentially two or more picks on a single guy. That's bad business. That's lowering your own odds of success. But there is a point, and I think the Packers are at it, and I want to do more work on this to see exactly where things could shake out in terms of where they could trade to in this year's draft, where you've just got, we've got enough picks, and the Packers have five picks in the top 100. How many is enough? Should they just stand pat and draft as many of those guys as they can? How many guys are reasonably going to fall to them that they can use that are going to be in those five slots? And if they don't think they can use all five of those picks productively, where should they trade to? I don't have an answer. But I think there is a point where you're, you're at a saturation level. The Vikings a couple of years ago made like 15 picks in the draft. That's too many. You're not going to get all 15 of those guys to the roster. You're going to end up cutting some of them. Some of them are just going to end up on the practice squad and out of the league eventually. I guess it's nice to have all the assets available there, but is there a point when you're just saturated with draft picks? Do you have too many? I think that like 10-pick range is the sweet spot. It gives you a little bit of flexibility to move around if you want to, but you certainly wouldn't have to. And since not all those picks are going to hit anyway, getting 10 options that you like and not having to sort through the, the scrum that is undrafted free agency you're you're giving yourself some options. And options are really what you want as a general manager. You want to give yourself options to develop your roster from a selection of players. That's really what the draft is all about, giving yourself options up and down your roster. And hopefully the Packers are able to give themselves some good options this year. Before we dive into quarterbacks and the questions we have at the end here, I want to take a second and shout out Um, our Discord server. It's a big part of the benefits that we give with uh, becoming a a Patreon supporter. Discord is a great place to hang out with Packers fans from literally all over the world. And we talk about all sorts of stuff there. We've got robust discussions going on right now about uh, the various merits of of different guys in the draft, uh, who people like, who people don't like, uh, what they think the Packers should do. It's all really good stuff. Uh, But it's not limited to that. And I think the real point I want to drive home is that uh, it's a great place to... Join a community of fellow Packers fans. But to do it, you've got to be a Patreon supporter. So head to patreon.com slash thepowersweep. Become a supporter at any monthly amount or pay yearly if that's uh, what you like to do too. And you'll get access to that uh, that fun community of Packers fans. I love hanging out with everybody in there. And we have some really good discussions about all sorts of fun stuff. Uh, so do it. Uh, join us there. We'd love to see you. Patreon.com slash thepowersweep and get access to the Discord server today. Let's talk about quarterbacks. It is an interesting draft class. There's a lot of interesting prospects in this draft class at quarterback. And it's the the sort of class that makes me glad that I don't have to make the decision. And even more glad that I am not following a team that has a, a robust need at quarterback. The Packers are a couple years away from having to make a decision there. Hopefully that can always change. But um, it it looks to me this year like there's a lot of guys that are in, in fairly similar tiers as players. So he asked hypothetically, rhetorically, setting himself to answer his own question, how do you decide what kind of quarterback you want to draft? I think there are three real things that you should look at when deciding on a quarterback. There are three criteria that I think a quarterback needs to meet to be a prospect worth considering. I'm going to outline those things, and then I will lay out how I think they apply to a few of the quarterbacks in this draft class. In fact, we're going to look at ESPN's top five quarterbacks, according to their draft metrics. Because I don't think we need to try to look at the quarterback class as a whole. I think we just need to look at a few of those top guys and see how they look in our, our little system here. So what kind of quarterback makes a good prospect? The first criteria I have is that I want a guy who's a good athlete. I'm not talking like he has to be Lamar Jackson or like a Cam Newton or even like a, a Josh Allen, who's a, a great athlete and probably is the best comparison uh, for, for Cam Newton these days uh, when he was at his peak He's a lot like what Josh Allen is now—just a big brute of a quarterback who who can run. who has got a monster arm. I—I I don't think you even have to be that athletic, but the days of the pocket statue are gone. Philip Rivers, who's now retired, and Tom Brady and Matt Ryan are—or were—the last of the dinosaurs. In the modern NFL, you got to be able to move. You got to be able to get to the edge. Got to be able to move in the pocket even more dynamically than Tom Brady is able to move, and he is a master of manipulating the pocket. It's a soft threshold, but I would say you need to be athletic enough that your athleticism doesn't detract from your game. And I think Drew Brees is a good example of that. He was a good athlete as a quarterback, but he wasn't a guy who was really defined by his athleticism. But he could move, he could run, he could take off and scramble if he had to. His athleticism wasn't a hallmark of his game, but it didn't detract from his game. Young Matt Ryan is probably an example there, too. He's certainly never going to be confused for a fleet-footed quarterback by any stretch of the imagination, but he could move when he had to. Uh, He could get to the edge and and things like that. So be athletic enough that your athleticism does not detract from your game. That is the the biggest and broadest stroke here. Secondly, I want arm strength. It's similar to athleticism, in that you've got to have enough of it that your arm strength doesn't detract from your overall game. Think of two quarterbacks who are not known for having overly strong arms, Kirk Cousins and Tua Tonga-Vailoa. Kirk Cousins doesn't have a cannon by any means, but he gets the most out of what he has. And the arm that he does have certainly doesn't limit his game. The same cannot be said, I think, for Tua, who I think is profoundly limited by his overall arm strength. And that is partly a function of being hurt in a variety of uh, unfortunate ways for him in his still young NFL career. But I think his arm strength does very much detract from his game. Neither of these guys has a cannon. But Kirk Cousins has enough of his arm that it doesn't detract from his game. And Tua just doesn't. And it does. It hurts his game. Finally, my last criteria is that you've got to be able to run the current dominant offense in the NFL. Now, the NFL is cyclical. All football is. And so this won't always be the dominant strain of offense in the NFL. But I think it's hard to argue that the current NFL isn't dominated by the Shanahan version of the West Coast offense. The Packers run this offense. This is an offense that thrives in a passing league despite having a, a reputation of being built around the run. The NFL is a passing league, and you've got to be able to pass well. But this offense passes the ball very well. Three of the top five passing offenses by EPA last year were running some version of the Shanahan offense. Green Bay, the Los Angeles Rams, and the San Francisco 49ers, all were three out of the top five. It's so one, three, and five, I think, as a matter of fact. Furthermore, of the NFL's nine new coaching hires, four will have connections there to that coaching system. Nathaniel Hacken in Denver, obviously, though he may run something a little bit more similar to what he ran in, um, in Jacksonville and in Buffalo. But I think there's going to be significant shanahan Lafleur influence there too. Matt Eberfliss in Chicago went ahead and hired Luke Getzey as his offensive coordinator. Mike McDaniel in Miami comes directly from the Shanahan tree via Kyle Shanahan. And Kevin O'Connell uh, comes over to the Minnesota Vikings from the Sean McVay branch of the Shanahan tree. The, the league's current meta game is set up for this system to really take advantage a lot of short passing, a lot of um, things built off of motion and play action. This system has it all, and it's built to make things easy for the quarterback. And if you're coming into the league and you're a young quarterback, I would say if, if you can't run this offense, you're going to have a limited future in the NFL because this offense is, is as simple as can be. Aaron Rodgers has shown that it is simple, but it can be taken to very high levels. Matt Ryan has shown that. Matt Stafford has shown that, with a shiny Super Bowl ring to to go with it. But at its at its basic level, it's a pretty simple offense. And if you can't run that offense, you probably don't have a future in the NFL. What do you need to be able to run that offense then? I think you need to be able to display consistent good decision making. You need to be an accurate quarterback. Need to have a strong enough arm for deep shots off of play action, and you've got to be pretty comfortable in in RPO stuff. That's a pretty decent menu, uh, but none of those, I think, are overly onerous. None of those are really big asks for an NFL quarterback. You know, consistent decision making is a little bit squishy there, and probably is the highest bar of those four, but I don't think it's a big ask to have your, your $100 million starting quarterback make good decisions on a, on a play-in play-out basis. It seems fair. Paying you a lot of money. Can you like not waste our time by doing dumb things? Seems fair to me. So that's the, that's the rubric I'm using for quarterback prospects. Where do ESPN's top five score? ESPN has Malik Willis out of Liberty ranked as their number one guy. Is he athletic? Well, he rushed for nearly 1,000 yards this past season, had 14 touchdowns on the ground. I'd say, yeah, he's athletic. What about his arm strength? Pro Football Focus says he has the strongest arm in the class. It's good enough for me. I would say he's got an arm strength. Can he run the offense? This is a pretty hard maybe for me. A lot of places use words like roller coaster to describe him. That's enough to give me pause. Because since the the Shanahan, Lafleur whatever offense isn't regularly going super deep down the field. You need to be consistent. You need to be moving the ball. And that's kind of the, the core ethos of the West Coast offense. Anyway, you're trying to move the ball down the field efficiently, consistently getting eight, 10 yards at a time. If you can't be consistently accurate, you're going to have problems doing that because you're going to get yourself behind the sticks and well, things are going to spiral from there. So Willis, Bottom line, there's a maybe. Can he run the offense? Can he run the most dominant offensive system in the NFL right now? A maybe. What about Kenny Pickett out of Pittsburgh? Is he athletic? Yeah, I would say so. 9.52 relative athletic score. That'll do. Arm strength, I'd say he checks the box there too. Can he run the offense though? I would say yes. Listen to this description from DraftWire about Kenny Pickett. Quote, Pickett is an exceptional thrower of the football Possessing great accuracy, touch, and above average arm strength, he uses the traits in combination with his high football IQ to punish defenses on a consistent basis, leading him to his breakout season in 2021, end quote. That sounds like a, a pretty good fit for the, the Shanahan-style offense. Also seems like the kind of guy with a pretty high floor. I don't know if I'd spend a super high pick on him in the first round, but if you need a quarterback, I think you could do worse than Kenny Pickett. Desmond Ritter is ESPN's next prospect out of Cincinnati. He, too, scores in the high nines for relative athletic score, 9.59. Similar rushing stats to Willis. Uh, I don't know if if it takes, uh, I mean, if it does anything for you, but Pro Football Focus says that he would be a draftable running back if he switched positions. He's going to make a lot more money playing quarterback, so I'd I doubt he does that, but they're just trying to make a point about the level of athlete that he is. He could play that position. Can he run the offense, though? I would have some concerns about accuracy. What comes up again and again and again, if you read his scouting reports, is concerns about ball placement and his throwing mechanics. Those are two big red flags for me if I'm concerned about overall accuracy if you're having trouble delivering the ball consistently as a college player with bad mechanics, it's not going to get better in the NFL. This is similar to something we've brought up over and over again with Jordan Love. There were real concerns about some of his mechanics coming out. Like when the ball leaves his hand, it's humming, and he's got enough arm to get it anywhere. But he had some mechanics that were a little bit all over the place. At times, and you see that sometimes even with his footwork in the NFL now. The mechanics are not always there consistently, and it hurts him as a player. I'm not saying Ritter has the exact same concerns as Love, but if you're having concerns about mechanics now, I would have concerns about how he fits into an offense like, say, Matt LaFleur's. On the other hand, he's been a four year starter at Cincinnati. Everybody likes the way that he processes the game and has great things to say about him there. Maybe he's at his ceiling already. Seems like a pretty high ceiling. He's not a hard yes for me, but I think there, there is, there's reason to like him. And I come down more on the yes side than on the no side. I think he might have the highest ceiling of any of these prospects, but he might be close to that ceiling already. And it kind of just speaks to the, the draft class as a whole. You don't have a Trevor Lawrence type generational prospect in this group. Matt Corral at Ole Miss is our next up. He's ranked fourth by ESPN. Athletic enough. He didn't test, but it shows up. Arm strength is there, too. The concerns for him seem to come up when you talk about whether or not he can run an NFL offense. Described as RPO heavy at Ole Miss, though that is a big part of the current NFL, the way that RPO stuff works in college is is not entirely the same, just given how the college passing rules work relative to the NFL. The the hash marks in the NFL or in the NCAA game make a big deal, make a big difference in how RPO stuff works, as well as the ineligible man downfield penalty being significantly different in college than the NFL. That that is a big factor in, in RPOs functioning very differently. Also ran a lot of play action. It seems like he probably could handle uh, a one of the we one of the offenses we've been talking about, but um, I think there's reason to be concerned. Finally, Sam Howell at UNC rounds out our top five here. He, like, uh, like Ritter, uh, like Willis, a uh, very, very good runner, 1,000 yards his final season in college. Elite arm strength uh, comes up again and again in his scouting report. Can he run an NFL offense? He hasn't really done that kind of stuff in college, so he'd be a maybe for me. We haven't seen a lot of firm evidence of it uh, so far. So looking at those top 5 applying those standards to those 5 where does that leave us I've got yeses as in terms of would I spend a, a first round pick on this guy on on Ritter and Pickett you No know, it's a little bit wishy-washy on Ritter I think he's there I think he's he's good enough to spend a first round pick on I would wouldn't have as many reservations about him as as Malik Willis Ritter, to me, has a, a high ceiling. But given his his issues, he has a potentially pretty low floor, too. Pickett, on the other hand, seems to have a pretty high floor. Uh, he's not going to be... It doesn't seem like he's ever going to embarrass you. The question you have is, how much better than that can he really get? Like, How much is his game really going to elevate at the next level? Is he just going to be who he was at Pitt? On top of which, he he really only did what he did at Pitt for one season. So some concerns there too. Overall, I'm glad I don't have to make this decision. I said that up top. I'll say it again here. But if I'm looking at this class, if I need a quarterback and I'm, I'm a bad team, so I'm going to be picking at the top of the round, this might be a good year to get a quarterback in the second round actually. And that could be a change in conventional wisdom about drafting quarterbacks because previously everybody has said that um, you want to get into the fifth or in the first round so you've got the fifth year option there. But you're going to have to extend the guy before he gets to his fifth year anyway. And if you're having to make a decision or go into a season with a quarterback on his fifth year option and you haven't decided whether or not you want to extend him, you know the answer already. How many guys are really going to turn it around in a big substantive way in year five to to really change your mind on who they've been to that point? So maybe if I'm a bad team and I'm picking up at the top of the first round, maybe I say, okay, let's get somebody else here. Let's get an edge rusher or an offensive lineman or whatever, address some other premium position. And then at the top of the second, we'll go ahead and get the best quarterback prospect available. There's not going to be a big run on quarterbacks, it seems, in, in the first round this year. Maybe you can get value there, and maybe you can get a guy who's who's pretty solid, and if he doesn't work out, you're out of this situation in four years instead of five. Just a thought. Some questions. All of these come from our Discord server, and that is another benefit of, of being a member there. You get uh, really easy access to submit some questions i um, not going to do names here just because, well, just in the interest of time here, just going to get to the questions. Um, but the first one up uh, comes along the lines of addressing concerns about players, which I think is a, a good topic here coming off a, a discussion about quarterbacks where concerns are going to drive a lot of them down the board. The question is this, thinking about edge rushers and considering the pack's draft position, when your selection is a late rounder, it's pretty assured that you're not going to be taking the top tier players at a position group. My question is, what sort of negatives that would cause a player to drop down into the late 20s would you find most palatable? It's a good question because, as the questioner rightly points out, when you're drafting in the 20s or um, even more preferably the 30s ideally 32nd because you won the Super Bowl, you're not going to get the best and brightest at a given position unless there's some bizarre turn of events, right? Um, There's a consensus number one overall pick who gets hit by a bus on his way to the the draft and he drops way down in the draft and you end up getting a redshirt year for the consensus number one overall pick. No, it it just, beyond bizarre extenuating circumstances, you're going to be picking a non-premium player, so what sort of negatives that would cause a guy to last that long are the most palatable? Really, just one, I think, is, is really palatable. The other ones, you, you got to really, you know, grit your teeth and, and just deal with it. But the most palatable one for me would be a lack of production. We talked about this relative to like Rashawn Gary, uh, but if you have got elite athletic traits and I'm sitting there at, say, go with the Packers' original pick here, 28, 29, I feel a lot better pulling the trigger there than on a guy who slid down the board and is not all that athletic. So to, to stick with the Rashawn Gary situation, say you're um, Washington a couple of years ago, and a couple of the other elite edge rushers are off the board. Rashawn Gary's gone, Brian Burns is gone. You're sitting there in the in the in the low 20s, so like 22 or something, they end up getting Montez Sweat. He was wildly productive in college, so not a perfect example. But, you know, there were concerns about the the level of competition he did it against. Fair. But he was a super elite athlete, ran like a wide receiver in the 40-yard dash, and had testing numbers off the charts everywhere else even if he was beating up on bad competition and you downgrade his production as a result, you can't fake the traits. So if a guy is is not super productive in college, but still tests like a maniac, I'm willing to pull the trigger there. So a lack of production is fairly palatable to me. Next question. Is it better for the Packers to trade their first and fourth round picks for DK Metcalf if he were to become available or just draft a receiver with a first round pick? This is a well-timed question because there's rumors going around today that the Packers have called about both DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett in Seattle, both of whom, very good receivers in their own way. If the question though is trading two draft picks for DK Metcalf or just picking a guy in the first round, I think I'd rather just spend the first round pick on the best wide receiver I can get my hands on in the NFL draft, and here's why. So this is going to circle back to our uh, our not chasing principle and our not trading up principle. Trading two draft picks is basically the same as trading up. You're spending two picks on one guy. the The flip side here is that you're getting, you know, a guy that you know is really good for those picks. So that's fair. Uh, but I generally, I'm opposed to paying uh, to to trading for a guy where you have to spend multiple picks and then extend him on top of that. Metcalf is going to be up for a contract extension here in the very near future, and it's just going to be it's going to be very expensive. Um, if I'm trading multiple picks, I, I think I'd rather just roll the dice um, in the first round than trade one of those first round picks for for a guy who I, I don't have control over for a a longer term deal. The flip side to that though if we're flipping it again I think I said flip side once already the additional aspect there though is I would trade say like a fourth round pick or maybe even a third round pick for a veteran guy in a similar contract situation so if it's if it's if it's a guy who's going to be uh, on an expiring situation soon I might be more willing to part with say a third or fourth round pick for like a mid-tier um player and that doesn't have to be just a a wide receiver to to use this example it could be any position I, I'm fairly willing to move mid to late round picks for guys uh, that I know are known commodities than try to hit on something in the draft i think you're far less likely to hit on something real good there than you are in the first round and even if it's if it's not great in the first round you're likely to get a better prospect than you are in the in the middle rounds anyway so I'm not Always opposed to trading picks for players. I just think if you're in a situation where you've got to trade a first and an additional pick and give a big contract, I would rather just try to get the guy at the position I'm looking for in the draft anyway. And there's also the entire discussion about trading up uh, in that question as well. Um, We've got to do some more work on that one behind the scenes before we get to trading up. Final question here Um, Packers, as background to this question, there's been some. I think, broad concern around um, various corners of the Packers' internet about how the Packers deploy their now three cornerbacks. Now that they've brought back Rasul Douglas, they've got Eric Stokes and Jair Alexander. How do they figure those situations out? Because two of those guys are going to be outside. Somebody's got to play in the slot. So this question kind of gets to that. Um, Regarding the slot corner problem, what is it about Eric Stokes and Rasul Douglas that makes them poor at slot coverage, or at least perceived to be poor? So the thing that you're looking at here is change of direction stuff. When you are an outside corner, really your job is going to be moving forward and backward. You're guarding against vertical routes, post routes, um, 15-yard digs, things like that. You get to do a lot of long movements, long back-and-forth movements. But when you're playing in the slot, You add another dimension there because guys are going to go every which way. They're going to motion across the formation. They're going to, you know, run a lot of five yards in and hitches and all sorts of things that involve a lot of change of direction stuff, which is why you see both slot receivers and slot corner guys tend to be a little bit shorter and have great change of direction stuff. And that's where Jair Alexander has a big advantage over both Eric Stokes and Rasul Douglas. Alexander is much better in that short area quickness stuff than Stokes or Douglas. Both of them, all three of them, pretty good athletes. Uh, Stokes and Alexander, really good athletes. Uh, But Alexander is significantly better in those those change of direction drills. What are the change of direction drills? Three cone and short shuttle. Uh, According to mockdraftable.com, Jair Alexander ranks in the 88th percentile among quarterbacks for cornerbacks for both of those drills. But Eric Stokes, while a very, very good overall athlete, is just in the 43rd percentile for the three-cone and 11th in the short shuttle. Douglas, 39th in the three-cone, 29th in the shuttle. They are not great in terms of changing direction. Now, they do have some other things going for them. They're both big, both above six feet tall, which is enormous for a corner. So they're really well-suited to that outside corner role where they're just trying to stick with a receiver stride for stride and be big and, and get in his way, essentially. You can get in guys' ways really easily when you're six feet tall and can run with them. But if you're just trying to attack a small area of the field with quickness and changing direction and stuff like that, that's where those change of direction skills come in handy. Jair Alexander has them, Stokes and Douglas, at least not to the level of Alexander, do not. I think it's pretty much that simple. That's what you're looking for from your inside corners, and uh, Alexander has it. If you're concerned about him holding up in the run, defense part of the game, that's fair, I think, but that's a discussion for a different day. 41 minutes. give you a lot in this episode, and I think that's going to be a pretty consistent theme as we go into draft stuff. There's a lot of stuff to talk about, and I'm excited to bring it all to you, but that's all I've got for you on this episode, Appreciate you listening in. I'd appreciate it even more if you'd share this episode with someone you think will enjoy it. That's going to help more people find the show and get more people involved in this conversation that you and I are having about the Green Bay Packers. That, in turn, is going to help all of us become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.